You're listening to Sustainably Geeky, the podcast for everyday environmentalists. Hi, you're listening to Sustainably Geeky, episode 63. Today, I am joined by Chris Gassman, and we're going to be talking about business, specifically um, what he does and what others can do to help make your business more sustainable. So Chris is the Senior Associate Director of the Center for Sustainable Business, a leading business strategy catalyzation hub at the University of Pittsburgh, partnering with companies like Pittsburgh Paint and Glass and Accenture, as well as thought leaders like Lisa Ross and Paul Pullman. Uh, Chris is also a podcast host of the podcast Sustaining Sustainability, so feel free to plug that um, when (laughs) we're talking about how you kind of got where you are today. Um, And his five-year BHAG is to help generate $1 trillion in revenue by making the world a thriving place for all. So, Chris, thank you for joining us, and um, I'm excited. You actually reached out to me as a listener of the show and uh, wanted to provide some insight on your experience as an EV driver based on an episode I had a couple couple months ago, a conversation. So I'm excited to kind of get your perspective on that as well. Um, but when I found out where you work and what you do, I thought that would be a great topic for the show as well. So again, thanks for reaching out. And I guess, can you just kind of start by you know telling us a little bit more about yourself, how you got where you are and what you do? Yeah, yeah. No happy to and thank you heaps for running the podcast as a fellow host i know what goes into it so it is uh is a labor of love uh and really enjoy all of the conversations that uh you bring to the masses Uh, you really break down a lot of complex topics in ways that are very relatable for folks uh, and make it very personal so thank you for all that you are doing to make sustainable geeky uh the as far as for my backstory right uh you know what inspired my journey uh, I'll see if I can keep this in like three buckets, right? So, um, uh, inspired, it's really hard for me to pin it down. Uh, I don't know if I'm just wired this way. I, I have this very distinct memory of when I was, I don't know, five, uh, seeing some advertisement or some uh, news clip on television around what uh, the president at, at that time was doing, some policy they were talking about. And I had this very distinct thought of like, when I'm president, I will do it differently. I would do it this way. Uh, and that permutated to like, well, what about, you know, something on the legislative side instead? They have you know, like longer staying power. They're there for longer. You can get more done, have more impact. Um, and I thought, oh, there's all this force trading that happens that way. What about on like the civil service, on, you know, within the executive branch as a staff person? Um, so all of those led me uh you know, to pursuing a, an undergrad in international affairs and political science. And by the end of that, that graduate or that undergrad program, um, I knew I had zero interest in being really involved in, um, in government uh, at that point. Um, but it's it, that kind of a degree program is, is great because you can go and do anything with it, but it's also paralyzing. because You can go and do anything with it. So what specifically are you going to go and do? Uh, and so that kind of leads to the the second bucket of the the origin story. Um, I ended up saying like, all right, well, all my friends in business schools and engineering, they're all going off in these leadership development programs. Why can't I craft my own leadership development program? Pick, you know, uh, a handful of time delimited opportunities uh, that I can rotate through over the next three to six years, try out different places uh, that really help me surface what am I passionate about. What am I skilled at? What will the market pay me for? And 
how do I advance my tribe, i.e. humanity. So that took me through the UN in Egypt, an international organization in Qatar, and a local company in Shanghai in China. And by the end of that, I found that, hey, this whole idea of companies making money by making the world a better place was it wasn't just marketing dressing. There were actually were companies that were really doing that and it was actually strategically relevant for them. And I thought, you know, this is the spot that I want to be in. Um, and so that was really the the origin moment over those you know, four years or so internationally. Um, that brought me here to Pittsburgh the first time around to get my graduate degree, uh, the joint program between the University of Pittsburgh at the School of Law, Environmental Science, Environmental Law, Science and Policy, there you go. Uh, and then the MBA over at the Tepper School at Carnegie Mellon in innovation and existing organizations. Did management consulting for a handful of years, started a podcast somewhere along the way, and you know that uh, led to my being recruited back here uh, at the Center for Sustainable Business. But it, other things we can dive into next. But that's kind of my origin story, and it was that uh, personally crafted leadership uh, development program. Yeah, I love hearing about how people get where they are working in this space because um, I think a lot of listeners, and myself included, are um, kind of trying to figure out how to uh, maybe work in the field of sustainability. And it's always great to hear from others who are actually doing it. And also to kind of reinforce uh, the idea that you don't have to necessarily start out on that path to end up there. Um, because a lot of times, you know, we don't all have degrees in in sustainability or the, the background, but a lot of the skills are transferable. So that's pretty cool. Um, so you guys are a pretty young organization, the Center for Sustainability, and I'd love to hear a little bit about what you do and how you got started, um, kind of the origin story for that. Sure. Yeah, happy to. So uh the Center for Sustainable Business is really only three years old, right? So launch poster back there, October 2019. Um, that is a, uh, an auspicious time to start anything. You might remember a few global plot twists that happened right after that. Uh, and so the, the center really had its first, you know, we had a launch. Um, and that was started off by Professor C.V. Bhattacharya. Um, so he's uh, famous in marketing circles for a lot of his research around the connection between what's the return on my investment in my social and environmental sustainability practices. Uh, how is that helping me sell more ice cream, for example? That was a project he did way back in the day with the Ben and Jerry. Uh, and so he uh, taught at a number of different universities in the U.S. and um, was also in Europe. Um, got recruited from a center that he was running in Berlin, uh, a similar center, to come and start one here at the University of Pittsburgh. Launched, um, in, again, fateful late 2019, and only had about one event before uh, everything had to pivot. Um, I came on about a year later, um, and one of the first tasks that I had was, okay, great, what are we doing now? Like, what's, you know, this is summer 2021. We're kind of coming out of lockdown. People are doing in-person events. People are not. People are looking for insights. People are leaning into sustainable business. People are leaning away from sustainable. What, what is the purpose um, for the center at this point, right? Uh, and so we did a bit of a listening tour. And the feedback that we were getting at that time was, uh, one, 
you all are doing really good work, right? We started with um, six founding member companies. We had grown that then up to 11 or 12 right around that point. Um, so companies were really finding interest. They were finding value in what we were doing. So yes, keep doing what you're doing. Um, because the market had changed so much, companies were also saying it's no longer enough to just be a convener. We also, in addition to still convening, we also need you to be an accelerator, right? We need you to help us go faster because the world is changing and we're trying to keep up. Um, and uh, the final piece in there uh, was that if we continue to try and be all things to everyone, we will ultimately please no one. So pick one to three things to be excellent in and follow those. So uh, during that summer, we came up with uh, the idea for three work streams, right? So up until that point, we were doing everything that you might expect for a, a unit in academia to do of research, teaching, and thought leadership or events, podcasts, things like that, right? Um, so on top of that, we layered in some specificity on thematically the areas that we'd focus on. So we work specifically around decarbonizing middle America, work around uh, workforce 100%, and then finally around ESG Rosetta Stone. So those are the three names. Uh, the first one is all about helping get more companies setting up with science-based targets, right? So what kind of strategy partnership do they need for that to set the target and create the strategies for it? Uh, the second one, we saw an absence of, of focus across value chains for inclusion. So a lot of companies are saying like, hey, we want to be more inclusive in our company but they're only really thinking about maybe their full-time employees um, or they want to be more inclusive in their supplying and procurement, but they're only thinking about the owner. Um, and so this was thinking more about like, hey, you know, we've just seen two years where if your part-time worker or your gig worker or your supplier, your contractor has a workforce issue, about the trucking and everything else that was happening over the past bit, um, that very quickly becomes your business issue, right? So how are you setting those humans up for success across that value chain where 100% of them are in thriving work? Um, and that's again, thriving work for all where they're representative of the communities they serve. Final one, uh, I'm sure we'll get into uh, environmental social governance discussions later at uh, ESG. Uh, it's a topic that a lot of people are talking about in different ways with different terms and different meanings. And so we're often just talking past each other. Uh, and so just like you might have a financial literacy program or a mental health literacy program, uh, our thought was if we could have an ESG literacy program, we would help. We're not going to be the ones to, to pick the one ring to rule them all. What's the one framework? But if we can help people understand, hey, when these folks in finance are talking about ESG, this is where they're coming from. This is what they mean. When your customers are talking about it, this is what they're thinking. When your employees are talking about it, this is what they're thinking. Etc. We could have some way to translate across those, some Rosetta Stone, then we'd be able to work with each other far more effectively. So those are the programs that we came up with. Um, and that led us to apply for uh, a second grant with the Heinz Endowments. We've now picked up uh, more than a million dollars in grant funding with them. Um, they also helped us focus the member companies that we're working with. So we're up to 14. Um, and then also added in a, a couple of other different ways um, that we're collaborating with folks around small media businesses and, and other topics really around those three themes. Um, so that's a bit about the, the center. I would be remiss if I didn't mention, mention 
um, our overall purpose, you know, why do we exist, right? Um, you know, the, the role that we see as um, an independent academic thought partner, right? We're not a consulting shop, right? Um, we're a, a thought partner. And so our role is really to, and the reason why we exist is to galvanize businesses to thrive for all, right? Really for all of their stakeholders. And so that really helps inform all of the, those work streams that we were just talking about, that research, teaching, uh, uh, and thought leadership, right? Um, I'm going to pause there. I feel like I've gone uh, off the deep end in the center. Happy to keep talking more about it or, or clarify any pieces in there. Uh, no, I think that's a pretty good overview. And I also am, am just very impressed that you guys managed to make it through COVID as such a young organization because I know a lot of nonprofits and companies struggled. And um, especially the fact that you were working with other organizations to implement these sustainability measures. And, and it seems like, unfortunately, a lot of that stuff got put on hold or kind of nixed during COVID um, is even more impressive. So um, kudos for that. And um, yeah, I think also it's important to point out that you all were able to kind of focus and figure out, you know, those three bullet points that you needed to focus on, since a lot of times companies and nonprofits, organizations in general suffer from mission creep. So that can be something that kind of drains and it spreads you too thin, like you said. So things to keep in mind, I think, for listeners who are maybe trying to do it all, but um, should kind of focus back in a little. So um, that's, a, that's a constant journey, right? That's a constant iteration, right? Yeah. Like you think you have it set and then, you know, it starts to creep out and goes back mm -hmm. and creeps out and grows back, right? So you're, you're always yeah. focusing on it. And it could change over time too, probably, like exactly. your your mission or your, your goals. So, um, yeah, I did have a question about the center, though. So you all work with companies from various industries, sizes, and geographic scopes. Um, which learnings from what you're doing can be applied to businesses and industries, nation or even worldwide? Sure. Um, so I'd say some of the biggest things um, are really around that concept of sustainability ownership. Right there are only so many Chris Gassmans in the world in each organization or each company, right? Um, but relying on those few people who maybe happen to have um, sustainability in their title, whether they're chief or director or manager or what have you, um, uh, you're not going to get anything done that way, right? Um, so just like you might have um, an accounting department that helps figure out how you run your finances and your budgets, and everyone in the company is responsible for being a good steward of the company's money. Similarly, you might have somebody that's in a sustainability function um, and really the, the major opportunity for companies is to think about embedding that kind of ownership throughout and across all of their different um, functions, across all of their different employees at all levels. Um, to, uh, to put a teaser out there, we actually do have some research coming out on that. We uh, dropped a little bit of it last year at our three-year anniversary. We've got more of it coming out here um, in the next bit, so uh, folks can stay tuned to our podcast for that on sustaining sustainability uh, and other uh, news outlets that we'll be sharing out on. But uh, in the interim, um, there is a book that a lot of the research is based on, so Small Actions, Big Difference. Uh, the Again, the, the key takeaway that I would encourage for other companies or for anyone at any level in a company is to think about um, engaging in sustainability the way that you would really any other major issue, right? So if a company is more concerned these days about cyber, 
for example, right? They don't just appoint a chief cyber officer and then give them no budget and tell them like, go off and save us from all of the multitude of threats that are out there. They, you know, they set it up strategically. They, you know, either weave it in as somebody's existing, uh, into somebody's existing role or create a new team for it and figure out how do they interface with the rest of the company, right? So the same way that you might've seen a lot of chief diversity officers over the past couple of years um, get staffed up, but never really given, or get appointed, but never really given any staff and never really given any budget and had all those expectations on them. And then a lot of them cut because they weren't delivering results. Think about it that same way that you might any other um, function. So really that sustainability ownership is the, the biggest thing that we've seen, regardless of what the topic is, regardless of um, generally the maturity of the company um, or size or anything like that. Um, that's that generally tends to be the, the issue of like, okay, how do we own this here in our function? How do we own this in our geographic factory or retail outlet? So it's like creating a culture of sustainability, not just saying you're in charge of it and you have to do all of it. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Like if you want to harken back to the, you know, just like a, a facet of culture, right? Like I know a number of different industries have safety as something that is a big aspect of their culture, right? Um, you don't just have a chief safety person and they're responsible for keeping the entire company safe, right? Like everybody has a role in, in maintaining safety in that in those types of companies, right? So a similar idea of, of embedding sustainability in the culture. Okay, that makes sense. Um, so I know looking at your website uh, and kind of a little bit of the research you guys have put out, a lot of your work is based on the concept of donut economics. So I was hoping you could kind of explain what this is and why um, why you went with you know this particular theory of of business slash sustainability. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so for those who haven't read the book yet, uh, donut economics uh, economics for the twenty first century or how to think like a twenty first century uh, economist. Uh, you know, it's it really does live up to those taglines. Um, to put the idea in brief uh, for, for listeners, um, if, uh, and I'm gonna try and describe this audibly <laughs> to, to get folks to visualize it. Uh, if, if folks can think of like two concentric circles, right? Um, and so the outside circle um, are uh, the environmental limits, right? Like what's the planetary boundaries? What's the threshold, right? Um, a good visual example that I can give for that. Um, if anyone has ever mowed a lawn, um, guy and if anyone has ever mowed their lawn uh, and stayed kept the mower on one spot way too long or kept the weed eater on one spot way too long and just cut down the grass until grass left there uh, and then expected the, the ground to regrow the grass and it never did uh, that's the same idea here with this um, this outer boundary this outer circle right like um, the planet has some level of tolerance and beyond that it starts eating into the principle, eating into the, the underlying ability of the, the planet to regenerate, um, to perpetuate the kind of uh, life support systems that we're used to and the bandwidth and thresholds that we're used to. The planet's gonna keep existing, uh, but whether or not it's a viable spot for us is a different question, right? Um, so we wanna live within those. And then if you think about that inner circle, that's, uh, to keep it simple, think of things like the sustainable development goals, right? The UN SDGs. Um, so things that 
minimal societal expectations around fairness and what we're looking for in society around the globe that everyone around the globe, every country is bought into and is on board with, right? So what's that minimum level of fairness that we expect um, in the market today? So when you layer those two things together, the space that you're looking at looks a bit like a donut. Uh, and so you focus then on that space between those two circles, uh, really th thinking about the, the safe and just space for humanity to thrive. So that's really the focus and the intention that they work through a lot of different factors in how to think about that. Um, what we found that was helpful and that we're actually starting a couple of workshops and training programs with companies around is taking these two mindsets, right, of the, the, the current status quo uh, mindset, business as usual, right, where uh, the market norm tends to be very uh, degenerative, very divisive, look no further than social media and uh, the market uh, mechanisms or the market incentives around that. And you know, that's one really great example um, versus business models that are more regenerative and disruptive, right? Um, so again, thinking about uh, a lot of cutting edge, cutting edge innovation happening on that side. So um, if you think about what is your company doing that is either um, hindering that, right? Like is more on this uh, degenerative divisive front or is enabling, right? More on this regenerative disruptive front. Uh, you're able to work through what's the purpose of the firm? How are you engaging with your networks or your stakeholders, right? Um, what are your governance models that reinforce in either direction? Um, what's the ownership look like? And how is that affecting or influencing things in either direction? And then finally, how are you funding things? Right, what's the finance uh, in either direction? Um, so that's something, a tool that the Donut Economics Action Lab has come up with. Um, and I'll happy to share, well, we can drop it in the show notes. Um, there's uh, a really great set of tools on that that a number of universities across the globe are picking up. And we happen to be one of the ones in the US um, that are helping share that out um, with companies so that they can start thinking differently. Like, what do we need? Uh, companies to be here in the 21st century. So again, the, the reason why we're really keen on it is because it helps frame things in the terms that people can relate to around thriving, right? Um, if we um, uh, keep focusing in, in a lot of different ways, um, anyone can point to something in the market where they feel like, hey, this person got left behind and that wasn't fair. Or, hey, this part of the market is broken. Um, so this thinking about like, hey, how can we do this in a way that's safe and just for all of us to, to thrive? It, it tends to cut through a lot of noise and a lot of barriers and get people onto the same page to have, start having a conversation. So that's one of the big reasons why we're we are really supportive of the idea and looking forward to exploring it and discussing it with other companies and other academics and thought leaders and saying, hey, where does this go? What, how can this help us see the market differently? No, I love that. And I, I think it's really important that we have these models uh, to counter what's kind of been the prevailing capitalist model of nature is ours for the taking. And, you know, it's, it's free, which it's not, We're, we know that uh, now uh, that everything we take has a price, whether it's monetary or not. Um, but also, yeah, like people um, have, have to, or, or we, we take things from other people, you know, accumulation by dispossession. And this, is kind of answering all of those things and, and hopefully um, it'll start catching on more. Um, so I'm curious, what are some of the motivations behind a lot of the companies that come to you or that you talk to behind wanting to 
adopt more sustainable practices? Do they all come to you wanting to, to do great things for society and the world and, you know, create this beautiful utopia or <laughs> that that's my ideal, but I'm sure there's, there's a lot of different reasons. No, sure. Yeah. Uh, so they do come, a lot of them come to us for different reasons. Um, candidly, I have had a few companies uh, approach me and they're like, hey, so what does it cost to get our logo on your website? I'm like, that's a very short conversation. Uh, we, we do not pursue those. Uh, so our, our minimum threshold, our litmus test is we don't just want your uh, money to collaborate. We're not a profit shop, right? Like we're just trying to keep the lights on and fund student experiences. Um, if companies are looking to collaborate with us, whether it's at a one-time event to attend um, or in a, a deeper you know, research collaboration thought partnership. Um, it's really, okay, are, are you rolling up your sleeves? Are you really looking to get involved in this? And that's the kind of, we were talking about culture earlier, right? That's the kind of culture that we're looking for, the kind of buy-in, even if it's just from the immediate person where we're working with and they're trying to influence their broader organization to become more sustainable or think more long-term, um, we're, we're looking for folks who are rolling up their sleeves in that regard. Um, you know, as far as for motivations, right, like what drives people to reach out to us, um, you know, I'd say uh, it's probably five stakeholder influences um, that are likely driving it one way or another. Um, you know, one um, would be around uh, the customer, right? Um, so their customers are likely asking for this. We actually just had a... Uh, one of our forums, um, some of our premier twice a year events um, where we bring a lot of cutting edge research together was just on the customer sustainability interface. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have those stats up in front of you right now, but if anyone wants, um, feel free to reach out. We did share out a lot. I mean, you can find most of it um, on our website. Um, but again, the customer might be driving a lot of these increasingly these days, um, whether that's from their own risk perspective around climate risks they're trying to navigate through um, or climate resilience they're trying to figure out um, or generationally. Right, having new folks coming in and just thinking about the market differently and asking different things of their their suppliers and their partners. Um, investors similarly are really pushing in on this. Uh, uh, I mentioned the sustainable business forum that we just had. Our one in the fall is going to be on the investor sustainability interface. So if folks want to check that out uh, later this fall, um, feel free to reach out. Uh, let me know. Happy to look you in on that. Uh, we'll have more stats and insights um, from that forum once it's out. Um, but you know, what we've seen so far is that there is an increasing interest from folks on whether they're proactively seeking to make the world a better place, or they're just looking to screen, at the very least, screen risk, right? To, or a screen is probably the wrong uh, term of art. Um, they're looking to think about risk, right? And what are the risk-adjusted returns that they're getting? Um, whether that's screening them, leaning into the what have you, right? There are different ways that they might be thinking about them. And it, again, it may not all just be, hey, we want a better planet. I just want to know about the, the water risk in your supply chain, right? If you're a fizzy bottle beverage company, that might be a thing your investors want to know about. Um, employees are another. Um, and so not just, you know, what we've been hearing more of over the great reshuffle and whatnots, uh, the talent market these days, or what employees are looking for yesterday, can influence in recruitment. Um, it'll also help with retention when you're more thoughtful with your employees, and it'll help you with your bottom line and your top line when your employees are more productive, right? Uh, the fourth one would be suppliers, is what might be one that um, companies may not think about, but we've had a, a few conversations around that where 
the suppliers are becoming choosier with who they are going to sell their wares to. Um, and so companies across the value chain want to make sure that they're still getting access to that preferential supply. Um, and then finally, you know, thinking about, you know, motivations might come from either regulatory or the communities that the companies are operating in, right? So um, at the worst case, you're thinking about it in terms of compliance. And again, those are generally companies that we don't want to be involved in because they're just looking to check a box. They're not looking to actually fundamentally roll up their sleeves and change and be better. Um, we're looking for more of the companies um, and engaging more with companies that are thinking around it like a piggy bank, right? Like what's your social capital piggy bank? Um, how are you depositing into that in a way that builds you trust with the community, that builds you a license to operate versus again, the companies that are thinking about like, Chris, what's the minimally, you know, like what is the, the worst allowable option that I can get away with? Right? Like that, that's not a company that has a lot of resilience uh, and not one that'll be one for us to be having effective conversations with, right? So the ones that are really motivated and that we tend to have conversations with are usually being driven by one or more of those five key stakeholder drivers. Yeah, it sounds like those are the companies, the, the ones that are just doing the bare minimum that um, if there were no regulations, they would be doing nothing. But these other ones are the ones that are more likely to kind of self-police and try to do the right thing regardless of what regulations are in place. But unfortunately, um, the other ones are the ones that we have to have the regulations for, right? Um, I have a question, though, based on um, what you mentioned about investors. And there's been a lot, at least in, in the news that I that I read and partake in about um, investor pressure on companies to, you know, change their habits, like you said. Um, you know, there was an interesting story about a group of nuns who was an investor in a company and like went to the, the shareholder meeting and insisted that they they either change something or they, you know, they were going to vote a certain way. So so I, I love hearing stories about these different people making, you know, putting pressure on these companies. But I've also heard a big movement for divestment from companies that don't do things the right way. So what do you think is a more effective strategy? And, and maybe this is an, just a pure opinion of Chris, but if you have any insight um, as far as is it better to just pull your money out of these companies and then let someone else come in and potentially, you know, that that's not going to care? Or is it better to kind of like speak up and try to put that pressure on as an investor? Sure. Um, so from the research I've seen, uh, there's it's a bit nuanced and they seem to kind of pull in, in each opposite direction and kind of support both ones. But again, there's a, a bit of difference in, in what each one is looking at. So I would encourage folks when they're looking into this to, uh, to be thoughtful. And it's comparing items in a fruit basket or comparing items in a, uh, a grocery basket. Um, it's uh, hard to put those two things next to each other based on the research that's out there. Um, the what I have seen, what I have heard from folks in practice and a number of thought leaders that are out there um, in academia and otherwise um, is um, the, the boycotts, divestments, whatever you want to call it, that works when it happens in mass, right? When there's no way to kind of skirt around it. Um, if, if, if the divesting doesn't create a cost, all you're doing is just changing hands, right? You're shuffling it from somebody who might have been able to nudge the company in a way that would be more sustainable for them and for the rest of society to someone who probably doesn't have those qualms 
and isn't going to focus on the company to do that. Um, and so you deprived the, the company of a, a thoughtful investor in that or a thoughtful uh, collaborator in that, right? Um, and so most folks that um, I've heard of, they'll think about it in terms of they'll raise the issues, right? So they'll talk about like, hey, for your industry, um, we saw the stuff that you've disclosed and that you've shared in your um, shareholder um, aspects or whatever other, other ways they might be uh, bringing them across. Um, and here are the remaining topics that we've seen for your industry, for your geography, for your size, et cetera, um, that are key risks, right? These This ratio or um, that overhead or what have you. What is management in thinking about that? What are your policies? What are your practices you know, around these different material risks, right? And that's that focusing on that material risk. And if the company engages in that or says, oh, that's really great, we didn't know about that, wherever they might happen to be in their journey, um, the important part is that, again, that they're engaging. Um, for the companies that aren't engaging or that are fluffing it off and saying, like, nah, stop bothering us. Like, we know our business. That's that's not a thing for us, but never really back it up and never really explain why that is not a material issue for their business. Um, the more of those that happen are more and more red flags that this company's probably not governed well. And it may not be the topic that the investor is bringing up. It might be the topic the investor is bringing up. But at some point in time, something is going to hit this company and it's not going to be able to navigate its way through that. Um, and so this is likely an asset that the investor would not want in their portfolio, right? Um, it's a, maybe an overvalued asset in the market at the moment, but is, you know, uh, not, may not have enough longevity for it, given the way that it's currently being managed. Um, so not to, uh, I'll give you a concise answer on that uh, or a consultant answer, that, like, it depends. Uh, it's, if anything else, I would say it, uh, the magic of and, right? So you want to engage and then... Uh, if engagement doesn't work, if you're not seeing good governance, then at those points, they're like, yeah, this asset may not be the right one for me. If, if you're not able to pull um, what uh, the investors did over at Exxon and get more thoughtful board members onto the company's board, that's not an option for you. If you tried and unable to do that, then yeah, uh, remove yourself from that asset and look at something that uh, is less um, prone to risk. Okay. That, yeah, I mean, it's good things to think about. Um, and maybe some of the folks that are listening um, haven't heard about divestment or, or even thought about it before. But, you know, if you do have investments in companies, um, that's something to maybe consider um, either becoming more involved in, you know, the, the shareholder um, meetings or, or input or divesting if, like you said, it's it's not a good fit. So, um, okay, so let's talk about ESG. You mentioned it earlier, and it's been in the news quite a bit for various reasons. So can you explain what ESG is and how you all are helping companies um, improve in that area? Sure. Uh, so ESG, or environmental social governance, right? Uh, so think of those like topics or as topics. Um, this was... Um, iconically um, spelled out um, in a UN piece uh, a couple of years back, uh, 2004, I want to say, uh, by the then Secretary General at the time, 
Um, and again, that's that seminal piece, Who Cares Wins, uh, that report uh, put out there the idea of uh, the nomenclature around uh, ESG, right, from an investing perspective. Um, and since then, uh, a number of frameworks have really risen up around that, um, thinking again about what is uh, about material value. Um, and one of the key aspects is that there's at least uh, single and double materiality, right? So single materiality is about value to the firm. Is this topic something that is going to create or erode value to the firm, right? So again, thinking like drought um, along the supply chain of a fizzy bottle beverage company, right? Uh, the, uh, the other one, so that's single materiality. Double materiality is where you're thinking about, hey, uh, this topic, this is creating or eroding value for other stakeholders outside of the company. Um, and so, again, an example like that might be, um, what is the, um, you know, plastic, microplastics, right? Um, having those in the ocean may not be something that impacts um, the manufacturer of said plastic credit card or whatever else, what have you, uh, but it is impacting those around it, right? Uh, or chemicals in that manufacturing process or what have you, right? Um, so those are things that the surrounding community impacts them in a very material way, in a very material health way, if, if not else environment as well. Um, and so that's the topic that they're gonna be focused on and concerned about. Um, it's important to recognize, just like we were talking about earlier with investing, right? Like that this can be a dynamic topic, right? So if you were to think about privacy uh, on the internet back in the early aughts, right? That was a thing that like everyone was like, oh no, we're gonna like, stay hidden and whatnot. Um, and now, um, you know, you uh, you expect a company like uh, any social media company, uh, you expect them to have some type of policy, some type of program or something in place around how they're going to protect your data, right? Or very explicitly letting you know like your data is the product that somebody else is paying for, um, right? How are they going to protect that? How are you going to hold on to that? And so that's a topic that changes over time. Um, and so similarly, climate or water or workforce, right? Um, different aspects of the topic are going to change over time. Um, the another key thing to keep in mind about uh, ESG is that which lens folks are thinking with can often vary depending on the audience, right? So say a retail investor, like you or a me um, or anybody else out there um, might often be thinking about like, hey, I want to invest in companies that are going to make the world a better place. They're thinking about, we're thinking about double materiality. Right. And so we're asking for stuff that's going to make the world better. If you're talking with a BlackRock or someone else, uh, some other investment management company um, that's having those investor conversations with the company, they're thinking about single materiality. They're asking what is creating or eroding the value of the firm. Right. Um, if you were to chat with an employee, right, who's you know, there at the company because they think the company is doing something to make the world a better place. They're thinking about double materiality, right? They're thinking about the impact beyond the four walls of the business. So again, they, those are one of the areas where you can often see folks talking past each other, right? So you were mentioning before about investors getting engaged for certain reasons, 
right? Um, even those engagement reasons, um, people when they hear ESG investing, uh, that can mean different things to different people, right? Um, so, and one provocative thing that uh, I might put out there um, is that there may not actually be such a thing as ESG investing. There is no such asset class. It's it's not a thing that you can buy and trade, right? It's much more of um, a tool that you incorporate into your analysis, right? So just like you look at risk in a lot of other different ways, here is yet another lens that you can look at risk through and, and adjust returns on. Um, so as far as things that, you know, what um, we're doing to help companies improve in this area, right? Like how, can, how we're helping companies think about um, ESG. Um, we've got at least three programs coming up on that front, right? So for the, the subject matter uh, aficionados, those who it's not their first go at the Apple, they're more that they're not in the 101 crowd, they're in the 201 crowd. Um, we do have a CSB sustainability camp coming up this uh, this fall. Uh, so if anyone's interested in that uh, for an invitation, happy to, to share those uh, with folks. Um, there's also later in the fall going to be, so that one's in August. Um, we also have uh, for the more senior leaders, right? So boards and senior executives, the ones that are working with them, we do have an ESG literacy program. So an exec ed program. Um, so again, really thinking about why, why is this topic out there? Uh, what should companies be disclosing, why, how, et cetera, right? Uh, what should we be measuring, why, how, right? Um, so those are on the company side. Uh, before that, um, we've also, I guess before from a talent perspective, uh, we're also working with current students um, here and, and other universities um, to help set up or upskill graduate level and undergraduate level courses uh, to help seed more of this thinking. Um, across uh, academia so that anyone who's graduating can walk away with sustainable business as a lens to whatever role, whatever function, whatever industry they're walking into. That's a bit about what we're we're doing as far as uh, you know, helping bring thought leaders together, put out new knowledge, um, and also uh, helping teach the next generation. Okay. Um, so, Obviously, a lot of companies are embracing this mindset of ESG, but there's still some controversy out there. And I know like right now, it, it's kind of being used uh, by the a lot of legislators to <laughs> to say that um, things shouldn't be implemented or, or, or I guess um, decisions shouldn't be made based on ESG metrics. So how do you think we can overcome these, uh, the, you know, this resistance to, to ESG and trying to think about other sectors um, more sustainably? Sure. Uh, yeah, I spent a lot of time with this. Uh, so the, I think like with any other good conflict conversation, right? Uh, it often helps a lot to, to seek to understand where the concern is coming from, like whomever you happen to be chatting with. Um, if you happen to be chatting with that legislator, great. Um, likely it's somebody else who may have heard them or a news pundit or somebody else and you're having a conversation with your uncle or aunts or whomever, you know, at a family event or a colleague um, or someone you just meet at the, the local cafe, local watering hole. Um, it's a start with what, so you can understand what their concerns are and you might very quickly figure out that they're thinking about it from a single or a double lens and misconstruing 
uh, in, in opposite directions, right? So a lot of these concerns might be around, for example, oh, hey, companies are um, making these uh, societal impacting decisions. We don't want companies involved uh, in that. We can have a whole conversation about whether or not companies have already been involved uh, and what their role should be. Uh, but uh, again, just on the ESG front, they might be thinking about um, double materiality, right? Whereas what they're legislating around, the parameters they might be putting in place uh, might constrain companies around single materiality and actually using relevant uh, risk metrics uh, for their own analyses uh, to be good financial stewards, uh, to be good fiduciaries of the money that they are charged with. Um, there actually been a number of uh, research pieces um, that have come up um, as far as the value that um, those jurisdictions are losing um, because they're decreasing competition in that way. So again, for a very pro-market um, uh, type of, of movement, it has this very interesting anti-market um, aspect. Um, the uh, other thing to, to really think about in there, again, just as you're having conversation, like, yes, you can arm yourself with all these latest stats and information that's out there, um, focus again on, on what is the material value to the firm at the start. Uh, and if you can focus on what's material to the company, you say like, hey, as long as we're talking about what's material to the company and creating or eroding value to the company, then let, let the investors have their decisions, right? And let the stakeholders have their decisions. Um, as long as we can ground the conversation there, that tends to cut through a lot of it. Um, because again, these, depending on the industry, many of these are um, very material for, um, I should say, different topics are material, more material for, for different industries, right? And so as long as you're focusing on the stuff that is material for that industry or for that company in that space, you're going to be able to cut through the noise more easily. Um, the final one, um, if you're having this conversation with somebody, uh, I would encourage you to, to get creative, to think about, you know, push back on them on what's the business case for business as usual, right? Think about, hey, what is the um, the total cost of the current way that we're doing it, right? What's the true cost? Like you were talking about before with environment and people, right? Um, and saying so like, this is what the current model is doing, right? Um, is this one perfect? No. Um, does it make it better in some ways? Yes. Is this one better in other ways? Great. Like, what's the mix? How can we find a way forward that is better, right? Um, and, and encourage your audience that you're listening or your, your, uh, your colleague that you're interacting with that you're not talking about an overnight flip the switch type of change that should be implemented, right? This is stuff that you're looking at happening over time so that people can plan for it, right? So people can make those decisions. I think a lot of folks make the assumption that like, oh, we're calling for the end of this policy or the start of that policy, or everyone should adopt this energy form or that energy form or what have you. Um, and that we expect it all to just like a light switch happen uh, immediately. And, um, and there might be a few folks that say like, hey, yeah, every day that we keep uh, belching into the landfill of the sky, that's bad, yes. Um, there aren't any really easy on off switches to change that. And so we have to work gradually, right? And it's that same approach for anything else. Um, so as long as folks are going about it in a rational, reasonable way and seeking to have a conversation and not like, hey, my point is better, um, I've generally found that it tends to help cut through things. 
Not always, but it, it tends to help at least have a more civil conversation uh, in that way. Yeah, a lot of people probably are just afraid of change, any kind of change, and this is just another another one, like you said, but it's not going to happen overnight. So, um, but, you know, so. Oh, What's sorry. Was saying, uh, even more so, folks are. Um, there's a, a favoriteism I should uh, remember. Uh, we decided to. Um, folks tend to like the concept of change. Um, they dislike being changed. Yeah. Right. And so that's what it means that they have to do something different, or that they're going to have to give something up. Right. Yeah. That's where often a lot of resistance can come from. No, very true. Um, well, speaking of change, though, um, and. and you know, transitioning the economy and business models. Um, there, are, there's going to have to be some changes made, obviously. So, um, on that vein, the U.S. government passed some legislation last year, or the last couple of years, to encourage and incentivize some of these changes and transitions. Um, so, could you talk a little bit about the, this legislation and how it can help business? Um, you know, tr maybe transition to cleaner energy, train employees, et cetera, et cetera. Like, what are some of the key features of this legislation and how will it impact business? Sure, sure. Uh, and so there's you know, a bundle of them that taken together are really the, the most articulate from an industrial policy that we've had in this country for years, decades. Um, so those are the um, uh, IIJA, uh, Infrastructure Investment Jobs Act, uh, the CHIPS and Science Act, uh, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA, right? Um, and so again, taken holistically, they're really um, shifting a lot of different pieces of the economy from an incentive perspective, right? Um, a lot of them are really around incentive-based, very few, if, if any, sticks um, in there, uh, like we're talking about, you know, regulations and mandates. Uh, so from a, uh, you know, what we see incented in there, you know, to keep it high level and particularly, you know, uh, maybe more for your audience, um, things that they might be interested in, uh, a lot of stuff around um, energy funding, right, particularly around um, uh, technology neutral, right, really focusing on the outcome, right, like looking for um, low, no emissions, right, um, looking to get to clean energy. Um, so uh, emissions neutral in that way, or energy neutral in that way. Um, so energy funding, um, really looking for uh, local manufacturing, there's the whole uh, conversation around uh, what is local, um, but you know, from a, a circular economy perspective, right, um, that definitely helps because it, it keeps the, the network smaller, makes it easier to either return or feed into other loops. Uh, and again, also helps from an emission perspective, just having shorter supply chains. You're not shipping everything everywhere. Um, the final uh, piece that it has in there is a lot around workforce training. Right, helping people skill up uh, in the types of jobs and work that are needed for this uh, energy transition that we're all working through. Um, or say broader market climate transition. Uh, so that's top three examples of things. There's a whole lot more in specifics, and a lot of those regulations are all still getting figured out. So if folks want to know the latest, um, 
remember correctly, the, the website is uh, cleanenergy.gov. Um, folks can go to um, just to see, hey, from a business or uh, individual citizen perspective, what are the things that I should be aware of, um, different incentives that are out there. And there are loads of organizations from banks to consultancies uh, to civic organizations that are doing workshops on what is in the in the three laws and what's the most recent uh, funding source that has become available. Because again, these are rolling out here over time, over these, particularly these next two, three years. Um, and that's going to set up funding for the remainder of the you know, next 10 years. Um, yeah, my sorry, my understanding is that the the funding is kind of a combination of tax deductions, loans, low interest loans through the banks um, that are approved, grants, and some direct pay for like nonprofits, et cetera. So it's it, a lot of them overlap too. So like oh, yeah. you could get a tax deduction and you could get a rebate on you know point of sale and you can get whatever. So so there really is the potential out there for businesses and individuals to save a lot of money on some of these things that need to get done. <laughs> right. No, exactly. And, and what I think a lot of folks don't realize is that yes, there are a number of these programs that are competitive, whether it's a competitive loan or a competitive grant program. And then there are others that, as long as you meet these criteria, there you are, right? <laughs> um, and so that's where some folks have said like, yeah, the actual funding impact for these could be far higher um, than what they've been tallied as, uh, just given the kind of transition and the number of people that might be availing themselves of those open-ended grants and other programs. Um, there's just a lot of change, a lot of infrastructure, a lot of upskilling that's needed. Um, and so I would encourage folks to really just you know, look into it, uh, see what's out there. Um, as far as, you know, what, um, you know, kind of questions still remain, right? Like what might future legislation look like? Um, the, like I mentioned, there's a little bit of a conversation around what is local, right? Um, and so trying to, to navigate that, is it mean that it was assembled here? Um, and we got all the parts and all the pieces and everything else from everywhere else. And, you know, 90% of the work happened elsewhere. Um, does it mean it was really fully built here, right? Like if there was an extraction, whether that's circular economy extraction or what have you, right? Uh, you know, how what what aspects of that value chain uh, are accounted and um, how much of this is happening again along that kind of spectrum right because if you do assemble does that so, so much if you do the next chain is that uh or the next leg in the chain is that more incentive and if you do you know the full cycle of the chain is that a whole lot more incentive right um those are things that are still being figured out right now um as far as for um you know, let's see, keep it as a top five. Uh, so one, uh, another is around um, capacity building, right? Um, so figuring out, um, hey, you have all these grants out there. It can often be Byzantine to try and figure out and navigate and just hundreds of pages long themselves um, per program, let alone the overarching legislation that created them. Um, and so in some places, there are organizations like the center and a number of others that we're collaborating with that are able to help some stakeholders figure out, hey, you know, you local municipality may have a part-time mayor and that might be the only person on staff, like them and maybe a chief of police or a chief of you know, a fire department or each of you might be part-time, right? And that, that's it. 
Um, and so to expect them to run around, keep the lights on, as well as raise their hand and apply for these things to help their communities transition in a rural or urban or suburb, that's it's just not something that you know many of them were really cut out to do. Um, and so thinking about not only just the transition, but like, okay, great, how do we build up the capacity for these local stakeholders to be able to avail themselves of this funding, right? So um, what kind of funding is there? What kind of support is there for the intermediate organizations to help them? Because um, you're probably not going to add a whole bunch of staff just to the local municipality for a year or 10 to figure out these grants. Like, who are the different agencies or the different entities um, around the communities that can help with those? Um, and do it in an authentic way that, again, isn't a money grab. Um, so you know, uh, local capacity building. Um, while this is the most articulate industrial plan we've had in decades, um, it's still maybe not necessarily as coherent of a national plan as, say, the national highway system was, right? Here's what we're seeking to achieve. Here's money to go forth and do it. And here's some enabling processes to figure out how to do it locally, right? Um, and we got an interstate system out of that. Um, does it have potholes every once in a while and you know need parts of repair? Yes. Um, do we have roads that generally get us across the country as needed? Yes. Um, and again, those all cut across different jurisdictions and we figured out um, a lot of routing and things. And again, could it be better? Figure out ways not to divide communities? Yes. Um, so taking those learnings, and that could be a, a bigger future area of seeing how do we get these two different or multiple different entities to coordinate with each other as they're vying for any and all of these funding or trying to go for it. And right now, uh, the funding, <laughs> assuming it happens, um, yeah, it, it's still kind of up in the air uh, since by the time this is released, hopefully we'll, that will be resolved. But yeah, whether or not the money even makes it to <laughs> the organizations that are supposed to implement this is a whole other question, I guess. Right. Um, and so that kind of leads to, uh, you know, an entirely other different aspect uh, about, um, right, so there's that coordination piece of it. Um, and then, you know, the, is it good, right? Like what we're trying to achieve, is it good, right? Um, but, you know, I'd say, you know, maybe a fourth other aspect of that um, that you started talking about there, right? The money getting out to actual hands. Um, is at the moment, without that kind of capacity building there, the, the people who are able to avail themselves of this are the people who already have the money, who already have resources, right? I mean, those may not be interests that are interested in transitioning or changing. They might, they might see themselves anyways, in a new way. Um, they might also just use that, that same kind of funding to perpetuate status quo for themselves, which again, is a reasonable human thing to do, um, right? Uh, so, thinking about um, for future legislations, right? For future topics that could still be solved. How do we, if, if we're of a, a political mindset that um, we work best in carrots, not sticks, great. How do we, if we're gonna put more carrots out there, um, do that in a way that is also fostering fairness, right? Um, so like the Justice 40, EJ40 um, initiative is a, great idea around, hey, we want 40% of the benefits, not the funding, but the benefits to accrue. And what does that mean? That all has to be figured out. Uh, but you know, similarly, a great 
where does this funding go? Who is who's available to avail themselves of it? And how do we set them up for success so that they can avail themselves of it, right? Um, so those would be things to think about for going forward. The, the final one that I would push on though, um, is that you, um, we really move things forward like the rest of many other markets around the world have um, if we started actually putting a price, uh, an express price on carbon. Um, there are a lot of different models, a lot of different ways for how we could do that. Um, and a lot of folks are generally supportive of the polluter pays, right? You're the one that's putting it out there and you should be responsible for, for paying for it. Um, for whatever reason or for multiple different reasons that, that has log jammed. Uh, those types of efforts have logged in in our political system so far. Uh, and so finding a way forward through that, that does cut through those noise, that does cut through that uh, entrenched current interests in perpetuating whatever different aspects of status quo, um, that would be a final fifth item if I had a consultant's five uh, that I would encourage folks to think about as far as like, okay, great, we have these things, so what do we do with them and what do we do next? Yeah, those are uh, great things to think about and look for as um, this is all getting rolled out. And uh, like you, I am encouraged that there is that EJ40 program, but I, I am a little apprehensive about will it be implemented um, the right way or will it kind of just be <laughs> all talk? But um, I believe I believe it was that program where they said they were putting out technical assistance centers to help local organizations and individuals kind of weed through some of the, the government bureaucracy. So that that kind of speaks to your coordination of efforts and getting, you know, the money to the right people. And hopefully that happens and that, you know, is effective. So I guess we'll have to wait and see. But if you are interested in any of these benefits, definitely look into them more and um, kind of watch where this goes um, as, as <laughs> the, the funding and uh, implementation um, unravels. So uh, or unroll, I should say. Um, okay, so you you did mention a, a tax on carbon as mm -hmm. something that other countries are doing effectively. Is there anything else that you think could be um, implemented uh, that that has been successful elsewhere uh, that might help you know encourage and, and businesses to become more and stay more sustainable in the long run? Sure. Yeah, I'd actually say we're probably at the beginning of a virtuous. Uh, cycle, a uh, virtuous race to the top. Um, so there have been a number of other countries that after the IRA came out, um, first there was a little like, oh, that's so unfair. And then they started coming up with incentives like, hey, if you want to manufacture clean here, if you want to generate clean here, here are the incentives to do that, right? And so now everyone's vying for um, those types of um, initiatives, those types of incentives. And so you'll see, I think, more innovative approaches to that over time. And, and those can easily be something that like, while we kicked it off, somebody else is bound to think of something innovative um, as a way to be better and outdo us. And there's no reason why we can't like, that's a great idea. We might as well implement a policy like that. Uh, so those would be things that we encourage to, to think about. Um, as far as um, just other stuff along the way to be thinking about, um, a number of jurisdictions are already uh, again, from a expectations perspective, um, are already implementing things like um, science-based targets or the recommendations from the task force on climate-related financial disclosures. Um, both of those have sister organizations, um, science-based targets for nature, 
um, and task force uh, for nature-related financial disclosures. Um, and so, again, a number of jurisdictions are already starting to mandate those as just, hey, if you want to do business here, this is an expectation that you have these types of targets set, that you have these types of strategies in place to navigate your way through. Um, and so, as we're looking uh, to figure out what we might do next, um, those would be things that I would encourage folks um, to, to think about or to pay attention to that, like, hey, this is an area for the opportunity. This is an area of opportunity for the US to play a leading role in uh, thinking around, uh, you know, the buy clean initiative just came out um, from the governments here a couple of months ago where the federal government and a number of state governments I said, hey, we're all looking to, to buy clean energy. We're looking to buy clean manufacturing. Um, so that's an incredible market signal. Um, there's the SEC rulings that are likely to come out here in the near future around, again, investor expectations on climate disclosures, climate-related financial disclosures. Um, there's the labor, Department of Labor, right? And so what um, retirees can be investing in, um, pension funds, et cetera, stuff like that. So I, I think we're going to see more movement on those fronts. Um, and again, I would encourage to look to what are other markets doing on those fronts and how is that helping them mitigate risks um, and increase uh, returns for all stakeholders. Um, the worst side of that is that you're uh, looking to um, socialize the risk and privatize the gain. And that those are directions that we don't want to be going into. Um, that some of those bills that we were talking about earlier um, are going in that direction. So. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of innovation happening around the, the policy front across the globe. Yeah, I, I would love to see uh, more emphasis on markets for ecosystem services and maybe rights of nature um, legislation. Like I think it's Ecuador that's um, had a few really successful cases in other countries that are giving personhood to um, specific entities, bodies of water and land and stuff. So those are really, yeah, promising areas that maybe we can take the lead on at some point. So. This was one of my favorite go-to topics uh, in grad school. So it's, it's, yeah, it's exci an exciting area to, to, to learn about for sure. Um, well, I know we're kind of coming up on time here. Um, so real quick, I just want to ask from a consumer perspective, um, if consumers want to support sustainable businesses, what are some of the things they should look for uh, to make sure that they're actually sustainable and not just greenwashing and saying, yeah, we, we love the environment and then they, you know, dump trash into the lake or something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so a couple of thoughts on that front. Um, first, um, you know, we're, if we're talking about a consumer, right, um, you know, then you know, what are they consuming? Um, so the, the first step in there, thinking about, okay, great. You look for companies that have actions that back up their labels, right? Um, and in some type of, okay, you know, I can understand that a fifth grader can understand that a five-year-old can understand that. Um, and some of the more, um, I don't want to say aggressive, but that's uh, the only word that's coming to mind. Uh, the, the more forward uh, labels on that front uh, would be B Corps um, is one that I would highly recommend just as a, a 
general litmus test. Um, that's generally a good idea just because of their focus on continuous improvement. Um, and all of the variety of topics that they cover on that front uh, or on being a more sustainable company. Um, the, the bigger thing that I'd encourage folks to do is to think about the, the, the difference that really matters to them. Uh, right? what, what is, what's a meaningful change they want to see in the world and start there. Do the, and do one more meaningful thing each month or each week. Right. Um, there's by the end of a year, those are a lot of changes um, that they'll have made uh, and a lot of votes with their wallet that they'll have made as well. Right. Um, and if you're doing it little bit by little bit, or um, I should say not little bit by little bit, because some of these decisions could be really big. Uh, but if you're doing it one decision at a time, it's it's not overwhelming. Right. It's one thing that I can wrap my head around and okay, I'm going to do this. And I'm going to wrap my head around. Okay, great. You can do that. Um, and as you start getting into it, it, it's a lot easier to keep taking those next steps. Uh, you feel a little bit of soft momentum. Absolutely. Um, well, do you have any additional resources that you haven't already mentioned uh, that you would share with our listeners to maybe learn more or just stay up to date on things we're talking about? Sure. Uh, Try not to sound like a library here. Um, <laughs> a litany of resources. Um, so we've actually talked about a, a few of them already, but just to recap, you know, the small actions, big difference, donut economics. Um, you uh, mentioned um, in there uh, around we were talking about um, the intellectual capital of nature. If folks haven't read the Overstory yet, um, would highly recommend that book uh, just to put uh, all of that in context. Um, a final book that I'd recommend in there uh, to really help put things in context would be All We Can Save. Great, great anthology of, of different stories and different pieces. Um, so those are four or so different books that I'd recommend. Um, there are lots of other ones, but you know, I uh, would at least start there. Um, I happen to be an avid podcaster, so that's where I get most of my information. Uh, and beyond continuing um, for folks to continue to listen to Sustainably Geeky, course, uh, you know, would uh, encourage that they check out, you know, maybe keep it in, in something like three buckets. Um, so for thought leadership, um, I'd suggest you know, sustaining sustainability, outrage and optimism, drilled, the carbon copy. Um, so those are probably my top four for thought leadership. Uh, for happenings and just staying up to date in the space, uh, Green Biz 350, Marketplace, and the rest is politics. Um, final podcast buckets. Um, if you're looking for profiles of other folks who've done really great things or who are figuring their ways, like they're finding their their own path, uh, like you mentioned toward the beginning, like understanding people's journeys and how they got into what they're doing now and, and how you might be able to do something similar. Um, so for those kind of pro profiles, look to Degrees by Environmental Defense Fund by EDF, EcoRight Speaks, and my climate journey uh, to get a, a variety of different ones. Um, on the, the documentaries side, the top three would be The Game Changers, uh, the 2040 movie, I believe it's just 2040 the movie, um, and then Years of Living Dangerously by National Geographic, if I remember correctly. Um, as far as newsletters, uh, final bucket, um, ours of course, uh, a little biased there, but um, 
a lot of other organizations put out great ones. Um, two that come to mind are ESG Today, and then the final one would be ESG Book. Quite a list, and we will link to those in the show notes if you uh, didn't catch all that or you're driving or something. So um, you can check those out there. And yeah, I I kind of laugh when you mentioned the overstory because our one of our sister podcasts, Marginally Geeky, we I, I suggested that book, we read it, and there were mixed reviews from the group on that show. But they are not all as environmentally focused as, as I am. So <laughs> I'll just leave it at that and let, let the readers um, draw their own conclusions. But um, well, thank you for sharing all that and sharing, you know, your knowledge and experience with, with us. Um, I guess we'll move on to our green life hacks and you've given us a few already, but um, this is just the part of the show where we share one thing that listeners can do to live more sustainably if they're just trying to make a difference or getting started on their journey. So uh, Chris, what is a green life hack you would share? Sure, so I'll give the, the idea and then I'll give an example of it, right? Um, so the idea, um, I have to give credit to uh, Joshua Spodek. Uh, I often channel his his second and his third TEDx talks um, around figuring out what your personal driver is. Um, so, like, what's your personal polar bear? What is your personal um, uh, turtle with a straw in their nose type of thing? Like that that might evoke stuff for some folks, but not for everyone. Like, what is the thing that really what was the thing that's in your backyard or in your uh, in your neighborhood that really gets you going and gets you to to take action, right? What's the thing that you care about? Um, and find ways to do something meaningful in regards to that um, every day, right? Um, so we talked a little bit about that before, but that's really um, to me that's one of the biggest life hacks uh, has been focusing more on like what's that personal aspect. Um, the example that I would give. Um, is you know back in summer of 2021 so two summers ago now um i was back in the rockies uh, for a family wedding and a, a conference um and uh just on a daily basis uh, when i would go outside and this is in the, the foothills of uh rock of colorado so you should be able to see uh, the rockies from anywhere you turn around sit there they are i know where west is um every day just could not see them uh, because there was fire smoke um, and it wasn't even local. Um, there was just so much of it from all around the region um, that you just couldn't see through the haze to see where the mountains were. Um, and it just got to this point where I just thought, these aren't the Rockies that I grew up with, right? Um, if I were in another generation, I might have said something like, you know, hashtag not my Rockies. Uh, <laughs> but uh, that's, to me, that just, it pulled on a cord, right? It, it, it tugged on a heartstring. Um, and so I thought like, okay, great. I've already do all of these other things. What else, Chris, what can I do that would be a meaningful difference um, that would really help move things forward? Um, and for me at that time, um, moving to a new city, looking at you know, investing in a vehicle, thought, all right, this vehicle, I'm not gonna go hybrid. I'm just gonna go all the way to electric vehicle, right? Um, and I know you've had uh, prior guests uh, on who had lots of great experiences and also ran into some troubles. Uh, you know, they may have had uh, range anxiety or other things. Um, and, and I too had a lot of those concerns when I first started out. Um, 
and I, I can candidly say in the 35,000 plus miles that I've driven and the you know, $700 it's cost me to, to drive that many miles, um, those, uh, those concerns usually haven't panned out to anything. It hasn't been anything insurmountable and the number of times I run into an issue, I could probably count on one hand um, over those almost two years now. Um, so it's, and for anyone who uh, needs help with that math, um, just to put that in context, because um, that it always baffles my mind. Um, the, the average US driver gets about six miles per dollar at the pump. Um, and I've been getting 50 miles per dollar. Um, and so it's been great for me for um, an economic reasons, right? Uh, but it's also been really great again for tugging at those heartstring reasons. Um, I've got to see more of the country, uh, more of the continent. Um, I've gone on road trips um, from the US to Florida, uh, Newfoundland, Toronto and back. I've driven out to from Pittsburgh to Montana and back. Um, this summer I'll be going out to the Canadian Rockies and back. Um, those are all parts of the country that I've just flown over and skipped and never really understood much about uh, before. So I've gone from having a flight once a month or once every three months to the only flight I've taken in the last two years was to the UK for a wedding. And there I was able to rent an EV uh, and drive around and see their country 2,000 miles uh, for zero dollars. Um, so, and just to, to put things in context, because I know that um, a lot of folks are concerned, like, hey, how accessible is that? Um, you know, I, I want to be mindful of that. Um, I did get mine gently used new to me. So it was around 20,000 bucks um, for the car. Um, and I live in an apartment complex, right? So I don't live in a home. I don't have a garage. I don't have at-home charging. Um, and it's all been stuff that I've been able to work out and figure my way through. So um, again, that's the thing that's worked for me. I would encourage folks to think about what's their, what's the thing that really gets them agitated that they will actually want to do something around and then think about like, what's that meaningful thing that they can do? And then what's the next meaningful thing they can do? Yeah. Well, and uh, thank you for sharing yeah, your experience with, with EVs because it, yeah, it can be, I think, very intimidating to a lot of folks who are completely switching uh, their mindset around driving. Um, and going back to what we were talking about, the IRA has a lot of incentives for individuals to get into electric vehicles now, although they are still working out the sourcing of the batteries and the materials, like you said. So that might not be put into place right away, but um, your state may also offer, offer incentives. So something good to look into if you're, if you're so inclined um, to make that leap. Yeah, there are um, a lot of incentives up and across the board on that, like local yeah. municipalities, local utilities, there are mm -hmm. uh, all kinds of incentives all over the place. Yeah. Okay. Well, my uh, green life hack is just, it's, it's sort of related to what we've been talking about today um, from the perspective of um, figuring out where the stuff you use or order or buy comes from. So if you work at a business and you're the one that sources the materials or the supplies or whatever, um, maybe try to find a either sustainable um, provider for those things or ask, you know, whoever you're ordering from, do you, do you have a contractor or whatever that supplies this um, in a more sustainable way? Um, if you're not the person that does that, maybe, you know, put a bug in that person's ear or just ask whoever's in charge, is there a way we can go about this more sustainably? 
Um, and then if you're looking at this from a consumer, just individual standpoint, um, when you go to the store, you know, ask questions and just sometimes just the fact that we're, we're bringing it up to the, the business owner or the person, you know, working there um, may just let them know that this is important. I, maybe I should look into it or if enough people bring it up, you know, they might be inclined to finally, you know, just do what the people are asking, if, if not to just shut them up. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, that's my green light package. Just think about where the stuff comes from, whether it's at work or at home and um, try to be more mindful of that stuff. So, um, Chris. Cool. The, uh, as I say, Jennifer, actually on that point, I don't know if yeah. you've come across, I feel like I've heard it on, on your podcast, on um, uh, Drawdown Labs. So Project Drawdown, they've got Drawdown mm -hmm. Labs. And one of the things that they've come out with are the uh, job guides. Um, so looking at what does climate look like for each of these different job functions, right? Like what can you do in your daily job? And one oh, of the ones okay. they have yeah. is on procurement and supply chains. So if anyone wants that specifically for the climate front, and they really spelled out what are all the things they could possibly do, highly yeah. out drawdown labs. Yeah, that's a great, great point. Um, and you don't have to do all that work a lot of times because it's all there for you. So <laughs> we're trying to simplify it. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. Um, and can you uh, just share where folks can find you and or your organization and anything else you want to, to plug um, online? Sure, yeah. Um, so folks can find uh, the center at sustainablebusiness.pit, P-I-T-T. Dot edu, um, and we've, you can check out upcoming events. You can sign up again for their newsletter or podcast uh, on there. Um, and we do have uh, three big events um, coming out that folks might be interested in based on the conversation today. Um, so we've got the sustainability camp um, in early in the fall in August. Um, we do have our sustainable business forum on the sustainable on the investor sustainability interface uh, in October. And then again, that exec ed uh, program on ESG literacy um, in November, right after that. Um, so if folks are interested, feel free to reach out to us. Um, you should be able to sign up for a lot of those um, from the website. You can also email us at csb at cats, K-A-T-Z dot pit dot edu. Um, and also feel free to reach out uh, to me personally on LinkedIn, more than happy um, to, to chat. Um, and all that I ask is just if folks are reaching out, please just don't do that like really easy connect uh, click, personalize it in some way. I mentioned you heard on the podcast or something that you're excited in, in talking about. So I know it's not a robot. Um, <laughs> you get far too many of those. Uh, to be able yeah. to sort through. And those events you mentioned, are they in person, online, hybrid? Uh, yes. Uh, so we are uh, looking at options for all three of those. Uh, so for the exec ed one, um, we'll likely be in person with a, a good amount of it asynchronous. Um, as far as for the camp, um, we do have a few tiny spots um, for remote participants and same for the sustainable business forum. Um, we are trying to be inclusive for the, the perspectives um, that come to that table. Um, so if folks are not able to make it to Pittsburgh, uh, but think that it would be a good conversation that they could bring a lot of value to um, and learn a lot from, um, more than happy to consider having them as a, a remote participant as well in one of the few remote seats that we have. Okay, great. 
Um, well, you can find me personally on Instagram and Twitter at Het's Gonna Be Me. And you can find the show on all the social media, YouTube, and anywhere you listen to podcasts. So please do subscribe and rate us, and like us, give us a thumbs up and whatever they let you do on whatever um, station you listen to. Um, if you have ideas for guest suggestions or topics you'd like to hear about, feel free to reach out through any of those platforms as well. Um, Chris, thank you again for being on the show. And to everyone listening, have a great rest of your day. Thanks so much, Jennifer. Pleasure. Thanks. This has been a presentation of the Epically Geeky Network.